Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. The grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, be with all of us as we gather for worship today. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles or on your devices to the sixth chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, and as we are turning in our Bibles, I want to make sure we welcome the rest of our church family who is um, worshiping in our Family Life Center, and uh, I want to welcome you into this study as we continue our study entitled Magnificent Obsession, a Passionate Pursuit of the One Worthy Thing. Now, on our way to our text, in just a moment, we want to offer a word of prayer and for a couple of reasons today. Today, our hearts carry with us uh, the burdens that are upon our sisters and brothers in Texas right now as they uh, struggle uh, to, to uh, survive the, the aftermath, uh, which has now been declared a tropical storm uh, of Hurricane Harvey. Uh, we pray for... Um, the rains that fell, the winds that gusted, right? the, the waters that are now rising. There's great flooding there, and I want you to know uh, what your church is doing, what you're doing. Whenever we experience great natural disasters like this, JCBC has disaster funds set aside, ready to mobilize, and this week we will send aid through our network, our sister organization, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. And later on this afternoon, you may want to check our website because we are going to post a link to the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's disaster relief website where you can read more about what we do as a, as a network of churches, as a, as a denomination of churches when things like this happen, and you can learn more about what you, you can do. But today we pray for sisters and brothers uh, who are struggling in Texas, in Houston in particular. Also, as we pray, we want to remember um, Adam Courtney, who is our uh, contemporary worship leader. Adam is very sick, very sick, and is at home. He's got like leprosy or something, and is, yeah, we really do. No, he's got strep throat, strep, streptococcus pharyngitis, right? Which, as we have said this week, if gone untreated, leads to uh, contemptovocal praisingitis. <laughs> the inability of a contemporary worship leader to sing, and we don't want that. We want you well as he is streaming, watching online. Adam, our prayers are with you. Uh, we're grateful for the good leaders he's gathered today who are leading worship in the, uh, in the Family Life Center. But let's take just a moment and pray for these and our own personal needs as we lift up uh, our hearts before the Lord. Let's pray. Good and loving God, we stop for a moment as, a, as one unified body of believers 
to confess to you that we've gathered here from a variety of places and absolutely from a variety of experiences. Some whose hearts are already lifted high and some whose personal and secret burdens are so heavy that it is a sheer miracle they made it in. And we confess this to you because we recognize that in your company, we're all welcome. Lord, we do pray for those who are struggling in the aftermath of a hurricane. In worship, we are mindful right now of those who physically are facing um, the aftermath of winds, the rains that have fallen, the waters that have risen. But we also are very aware that there may be even those in this room who have experienced the wind and the rain and the flooding of soul. And we stand in desperate need of your company so that we can be transformed in heart and mind. That those who are sad today, we lift them before you. We, we lift up the sad so that you may lift their heads. We hold before you the lonely, Lord, so that you may be the friend. We hold before you our own brokenness so that you as reconciler can put us back together. We pray that as we open up your word that you would somehow open up our minds and hearts that we may grow from having been together, that we may grow from having yielded our lives before you and before the power of this sacred word. So this time is yours. And so are we. In your most holy name we pray. Amen. So, Isaiah chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1, hear these words. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The pivots on the thresholds, well, they shook at the voices of those who called. And, and the whole house was filled with smoke. And I said, Whoa, is me. I am lost, for I am a man of, of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt is departed and your sin is blotted out. 
Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. The reading of the sacred and mysterious word of God. May God now add a blessing to the hearing and to the doing of it. Did you know about the, the preacher one night who was at home on a Saturday night reading a book? Because you know that's what we do on Saturday nights. We, except last night when you watched the Mayweather-McGregor fight. He was at home and, and was reading a book and there was a knock on the door and he opened the door. It was kind of late at night and there was a man there and he was out of breath. He was exasperated. He was sweating. He had run there to his porch and said, Preacher, there's a problem. There's this family down the road and they, they're in dire straits. The dad lost his job a few months back. The mother's trying to make ends meet. They have kids. They're, they're trying to meet all their bills and obligations. And, and their rent is due, but they don't have the money to pay the rent. And the landlord said that if they don't have the money tomorrow, then they would be kicked out. So we've got to do something. Can we do anything? And the preacher said, well, yes, of course. Let me get dressed and we'll, we'll, we'll pull together some money and we'll take care of things. As he got dressed, as they're heading down the porch, he says to the man who had come out of great care for this family and said, by the way, how do you know, how do you know this family? And the man said, oh, I'm, I'm, their, I'm their landlord. Yeah. You can know a thing... You can, you can see a thing, you can hear a thing, be aware of a thing, and yet still never be changed by a thing. The same can be said in worship. There's much that we can know here. We can lodge all kinds of information up here, and yet it never result in transformation down here. When we talk about worship, as we have been talking over the last few weeks, the nature and the character of authentic worship in Christ, what, what we've been saying is that you and I have the opportunity in worship to fix our gaze upon the only one in the universe worthy of that gaze, to fix our mind's attention and our heart's affection so crisply and so cleanly upon that one that we are changed by what we see. We, We've talked about that, but do you know what is equally possible? It's absolutely possible to, to fix our eyes on him, to gather in worship on a campus like this, to hear amazing music, to listen to provocative sermons, to open up sacred and holy ancient texts, and yet leave exactly the same way we came. It is, it's possible to come here and be immersed in such mystery and glory and beauty and yet leave just as angry or worried or anxious or self-focused or hateful or impatient as we were when we drove up onto the campus. But when we experience true worship, I mean, when we really encounter 
the holiness of true worship, an encounter with that mysterious divine being that gave you breath and sustains your life, when and if that ever happens, we are never, ever the same. We're never the same. And Isaiah knew it. Isaiah one day went down to the temple and he walked in and he didn't expect to be transformed the way he was, but he had an encounter that so overwhelmed him that it changed the trajectory forever. I mean, it happened at the temple. And traditionally, we see Isaiah chapter 6 as kind of a traditional example of what worship is supposed to be like. We've always gone to Isaiah chapter 6, the passage we just read a moment ago, as that example of the place that demonstrates everything that worship ought to be. I mean, it includes all of it. It it includes every movement and every moment. You can study it. We're about to do that very thing. But for Isaiah, it happened at the temple. He walks in. It's probably uh, an enthronement ceremony. The old king is dead. There's a new king being enthroned, and he's mesmerized by this thing happening. He's overwhelmed by this thing in every possible way that he can be overwhelmed. In fact, it happens in the temple, but what you and I have to remember as we study this text today is that the thing that Isaiah experienced that day can be experienced anywhere in life. In fact, verse 3, put it this way, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Watch this. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Sometimes we tend to think that the only place where we can worship is at a house like this. But when we encounter true, authentic worship, it comes to our surprise in 10,000 places we didn't expect to see or be encountered by the Holy One. The whole earth is crammed with God. And so that's important to know because as we study this text, I just want you to be aware, if for no other reason than to simply prime the soul to begin seeing these opportunities when we leave this place. Now, to study it, I just want to kind of frame our thoughts today because as we study Isaiah chapter 6, I want to put it this way, that worship involves at least three kinds of movements. Three things happen in worship. Now, we can talk about it in a thousand different ways, and we can use a million different words to describe it, but I'm going to choose three. I'm going to say that if we study Isaiah chapter 6, there are um, at least three movements that take place in this text. There is connecting, there is forming, and there is mobilizing. In worship... When it's real and when it's in the raw, there is a connecting that happens. There is a forming that happens. And there is a mobilizing that gets initiated. So let's begin with the first movement of any real worship. The first movement is connecting. Now when I say there is connecting in worship, what in the world do I mean? When I say we connect in worship, what am I talking about connecting to? Well, in in 1917, which was 100 years ago, hang on, let me check my math on that, let's see. Yeah, it's 100, right? 100 years ago, a theologian from Germany named Rudolf Otto, which is a great name, he wrote a book and published it entitled The Idea of the Holy. 
And in this book, he talked about the mysterious otherness, the, the holy otherness of God. That sometimes in our culture, we tend to so domesticate God that we only think of God as somehow our buddy, our friend. Oh, this is my, oh, you know. We do. And the fact is, Jesus is our friend, but he's not our buddy. There is in God a holy otherness that has power that cannot be contained. It cannot be controlled. And so he introduced a word in this book called The Idea of the Holy. And the word or the phrase was this. God is the mysterium tremendum. The mysterium tremendum. The, the mysterious and tremendous mystery. The tremendous mystery of God. Tremendum, I'm, I'm I guarantee you, if, if Otto had written his book after World War II, he would attempt to describe what he's after here by using the word atomic. I believe that he would try to describe the character of God as one who is so powerful and large and grand and magnificent that nothing we do can contain it. There is this explosive nuclear power character and essence of God. You feel that? The mysterium tremendum is a phrase that attempts to say you can't wrap words around God. There is so much power in God that, that our words escape us, our, our, our descriptions limit us. That's why we as Christians point to a person and we say in the face of Jesus, that's what it looks like. But this mysterium tremendum is an attempt to remind us that when we are approaching God, we are approaching a mystery that is beyond us. That we can't possibly control it. Escapes us. Isaiah, when he approached the temple that day, was confronted by the mysterium tremendum. And he was confronted in every possible way that a human being can be confronted and process information. In every multi-sensory way. He, he saw, he heard, he felt, he smelled, he tasted. When he went into the temple that day, he, he saw, the text says, the hem of, of the robe of the Lord filled the temple. He saw the clothing, the, the array of God, and it couldn't be contained. It was everywhere, the whole earth is filled with his, he saw, he heard the voices of angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He saw and he heard, but maybe my favorite part of this text is that he felt, he touched, because he felt the pivots on the threshold beneath his feet begin to tremor and shake at the thundering presence of this mysterious and tremendous God. He not only saw and heard and felt, but he smelled. There, the whole house was filled with smoke, and he tasted. We'll read in just a moment how the, the coals of purification were touched to his lips, and in every possible way, he was overwhelmed by the power and majesty of this being. And my question to you like that my question to you is when was the last time you worshiped like that 
When was the last time you came to JCBC prepared to worship like that? I don't mean when was the last time you pulled up into the parking lot and, and thought to yourself, I wonder what the sermon is, or I wonder what we're going to sing, or I wonder what passage we're going to study. I mean, when was the last time when you came to church, you drove up on the parking lot and you said, Lord, I want to see your face. I want to hear your words spoken over my life because I'm afraid and I need peace or I'm confused and I need clarity or I have sinned and I need forgiveness. I want to see you and hear you and I want to feel the tremor of your thundering presence walking about in my own life. I want to smell. I want to breathe the breath of life that you give me, and I want to taste the purifying presence of your spirit, touch the hot coal of purification to the lips of my soul and make me new, make me new. When was the last time you prepared for worship like that? Because when I am talking about worship includes three movements, connecting, forming, and mobilizing, when I say worship includes connecting, that's what I'm talking about. It means connecting to that. But worship doesn't just include connecting, it includes forming. Because once we are connected to that mysterium tremendum, we are formed, shaped, molded, morphed into the very character of that one who is the object of our worship. So Isaiah walks in and he's connected in every multi-sensory way to this majestic being. And these are the words he offers at this point. I say to you, woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Maybe the most powerful word in that whole phrase when he is overwhelmed by the presence of this mystery, maybe the most powerful word is the word woe. Because the fact is you, you, you can't be in the company of someone who is so holy and perfect and good and not recognize your own unholiness, your own imperfection and your own places where you are not good. You cannot be in the company of such loveliness and beauty and not at the same time recognize the absence of those things in your own life. And the only thing that we can say when we are really confronting that kind of God is, whoa. One of my favorite professors years ago translated this passage maybe better than anything I've ever read he said, really, a better translation of this moment in worship when he realizes how great and awesome and perfect and powerful you are and how small and tiny and, and, and miserable my life is, maybe the best way to interpret it is this way. Oh, boy, I'm a goner. Oh, boy, I'm a goner. The fact is, when we come to worship or experience worship, we confront a God who makes us confront ourselves. I think I may have told you a little bit about my brother. I had a brother growing up. He died when we were younger, a younger brother, and 
But when we were kids, we would get ready for school in the morning and we would be in the bathroom getting ready and I'd walk in and he'd be brushing his hair, but the lights were out. And so I'd walk in, I'd say, hey, turn the lights on, we can't see. I'd turn them on and he'd say, no, 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 turn them off, turn them off. And I'd say, why? And he said, because I, I like how I look better in the dark, <laughs> you know? And isn't it right? I mean, is that not true? Don't we all prefer how we look better in the dark when, when our imperfections are not revealed? When our scars, our brokenness, our mistakes are not visible to the outside world, don't we prefer it? Rod Cooper said that worship is like approaching a mirror with lights on it, like this one here. Uh, not long ago, Laura and I were at Bed Bath & Beyond, not by choice, but by commitment to marriage. And as we were walking through bed, there was this, this mirror that looked kind of like that when it was anchored to the wall, sticking out, but it was motion censored. The closer you get to it, the lights would come on. So I got real close. I thought I would test it out. I got real close. The lights illumined as I got closer and scared me to death. You would not believe the things that I was able to see. I saw pores and, and whiskers and things growing on my face that I had, had no clue how they got there. The trouble is nobody likes to see that close, but when we come to worship, when we approach the light of the world, that light holds up a mirror that we may see our own reflection. So that as we gaze on his loveliness, we become aware of our own unloveliness long enough to start despising it so that then we yield to his ability to fix it. Which I think is why the burning coals show up in this text. Because Isaiah, Isaiah says, you know, I am a man of unclean lips. But here's an interesting part. I love this. He said, whoa, I'm a goner. Oh, boy. But he says, but I am among a people of unclean lips. That's the good news about coming to worship is that yes, you confront the light of the world who holds up a mirror and shows you where you need some work and where you need transformation. But when we come to worship, the truth is you look around and say, oh boy, I'm a goner, but you know what? So is she, and so is he, and so is the preacher. We recognize we are part of a community in need of transformation always. This is why we, we, we gain great confidence from Romans chapter 3. When we hear these words, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the hot coals come to purify his lips. And hot coals are those ancient symbols of purification. It's kind of an ancient metaphor of, 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 of purifying and becoming new and, and renewed. And Isaiah says that two seraphs bring the coals and clean his lips so that he is made new, forgiven of his sins. And what troubles me is that sometimes that's the only way to become new. When we are willing to let the hot and purifying work of God have its way in us. When I was in Orlando, a few years ago as a pastor, a friend of mine was a pastor locally and he served in the area of town known as Mercy Drive. If you're familiar with Orlando, you know that that part of town is unfortunately known for its high crime rate, and it's, it's, it's kind of a rough part of town, and we were having coffee, and, 
And he said, something interesting happened at church yesterday. What happened? He said, well, this guy comes in the back and sits down on the pew, and I'd never seen him before. And, and I can tell he was visibly upset the entire time. He was weeping, tears streaming down his face through the sermon, through the singing. And when, when the church emptied and everybody left, he stayed back there. So I went back and sat beside him. And I said to him, what's going on? He said, preacher, I don't know why I came to church today. I woke up this morning planning to go rob the 7-Eleven right around the corner. And about that time, he pulled up his shirt tail to show the, the handgun that he had. The pastor didn't panic, though. He just listened. And he said, I don't know what it is, preacher, but I just I don't want to rob that store no more. And that's something, I mean, when we approach the light of the world and the light of the world holds up a mirror and we recognize the places where we are imperfect and we see all the places where we are broken, yet we gaze upon the one who is whole and beautiful, something happens in us. We are formed into the character of the one who we worship. So not only are we connecting in worship and forming in worship, but everything moves toward the culmination of worship when we are mobilized in his name. I tell you every week whenever we do the benediction, and I'll say it again today, that the most important moment of our entire gathering is not in the singing and not in the preaching, but in the scattering, right? When we're mobilized to take grace into a hurting world. Isaiah hears the words spoken to him at the end of this encounter and here are the words then I heard the voice of the Lord saying whom shall I send and who will go for us and I said here am I send me in his book uh, Christ plays in 10,000 places Eugene Peterson writes about a dynamic that I want you to hear about he, he uses a phrase he, in 10,000 places. This book is about all those 10,000 unexpected, unexpected places where you encounter the holy risen Christ and where you can worship in all of life. Right? But in the midst of it, he describes an ancient concept known as perichoresis. It's an ancient word. It was used first in the 4th century uh, by... Uh, Gregory uh, Nazianzus, it was used again in the 7th century by uh, St. John of Damascus. And it's an ancient word, perichoresis, that's made up of two words, peri, which means round, and choresis, which means dance. That's where we get the word choreography, right? Perichoresis is the word that for centuries we have used to best describe the action of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Perichoresis is the best way to understand what's up in the Holy Trinity, where there are three persons, yet they are one. It describes the holy action of God. And it describes it like a circle dance. It's almost like a square dance with the corners knocked off, where, where there are, well, there's bobbing and weaving and dosy doing. Take a look at the images that have been used over the centuries, over the ages to describe the action of God, Father, with parental love, dancing the divine dance of parental love. The Son, dancing His divine steps of, 
reconciliation and redemption and atonement. The Spirit dancing the Spirit's unique dance steps of advocacy and presence and conviction. And yet all three of them together dancing, dancing, dancing all around. Did you like that? That's kind of nice, wasn't it? Dancing where there's bobbing and there's weaving and dosy doing, and yet God in all of God's diversity is dancing, dancing this action of divine love. But the point is that in the perichoresis, the image is never finished with just the three persons of the Trinity doing some dance. But always in perichoresis, there's this divine movement, this divine um, activity, and eventually the image is a hand that reaches out to you, inviting you into the dance, the dance of reconciling the world with God. You know where I saw this happen? About a year ago this weekend, Nathaniel and... Finley Balance were married a year ago this weekend. They're not here because they're celebrating their anniversary. They don't even know I'm talking about them unless they're streaming right now. They're down at Disney celebrating. And about a year ago, we had this wedding, and it was a beautiful wedding. And then we had this reception, and it was a beautiful reception. And there was music, and there was dancing. And I love those moments. Now, you have to know something about your pastor, though. As hard as it may be to believe, by nature, I am an introvert. And so I don't rush to dance floors. I kind of enjoy standing back, and I really that weekend was delighting in the number of amazing relationships that I was watching of church members who were in their 20s who have loved each other and walked along each other uh, with each other for so long, dancing and celebrating and doing life. I was standing back there, and by the way, in the middle of all of it, my wife is in up there. She's not an introvert. My wife is dancing, she's jamming, she's getting her, her groove on, and everybody, all our church members are having a great time. But I'm back here talking to somebody in the church. We're just kind of watching and, and delighting. And then Flo Rida, Flo, or uh, Low by Flo Rida came on, which is a great jam. And, and I looked up, and Finley, the bride, leaves the dance floor. But the music's just starting. Everybody's just kind of crowding in as she leaves the dance floor and she's walking back toward me. Oh, <laughs> uh, look, she's taking a break. Can I get you some water? Is anything you need? No, she's walking, walking, getting closer and closer to me until eventually as I'm standing there talking to somebody, she comes up and she does this. She sees her preacher standing back there watching a dance. You don't go to a wedding and watch a dance. And when the bride says, come with me, what do you do? You go. So I grabbed her hand and I set down my drink and I said, oh boy, I'm a goner. <laughs> and we got to the dance floor and we had some fun because a dance is not meant to be watched it's meant to be danced. And when the perichoresis, when the holy trinity of God's divine fatherly love and the son's holy redemptive love and the spirit's advocating love that never leaves us or forsakes us reaches out a hand and says, come dance. You come dance. And the question that I leave you with today is the hand is out. What will you do? The music's playing. Will you dance? We call that worship.
Let's pray. Good and loving God for the invitation to dance, for the invitation to life, for the call to come close to the light of the world and to look closely at you and recognize the imperfections in us and for the dangerous invitation of yielding our life before you. We say thank you. For as frightening as it may be to yield all of life, as daunting as it may be to confess all our sins, we yield it before you because we recognize this dance is not meant to be watched. Show us the moves and we will join you in reconciling the world. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord.